Hey everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Linux and Open Source News Podcast. And this week we have more signs, unfortunately, that Solus as a distribution is dying, or maybe even already dead. We have the first defamation lawsuit against OpenAI, as the text it invents starts affecting some people's lives, and the EU is now trying to encourage a new big tech giant to form from a conglomerate of European companies. And we also have Microsoft looking at making Windows better to compete with SteamOS and be actually usable on handheld PCs. And we have Valve doing some relatively crappy stuff and a lot more. So the usual reminder that all the links I use to make this podcast are in the show notes. And also, this show is still user-funded, without sponsors and ads, and if you like it like that, well, don't hesitate to click in the links in the description below to help support the show. So, let's get started. Let's begin with Solus, and DistroWatch is hardly the best source to monitor the popularity of a Linux distribution. It merely puts distros up and down depending on what people actually look for on DistroWatch, doesn't mean that the first distro on DistroWatch is the most popular, but it is still a very good tool to get updates on specific distributions and information on them. And on DistroWatch now, uh, Solus has been downgraded from an active status to dormant. This is apparently something that they do automatically uh, when a distro hasn't had a release out for two years or more. It seems to be automatic. And that's the case with Solus, as its latest release dates from early 2021. Uh, Yeah, that's it. Uh, There has been no new ISO available for Solus since this date. And you can still download it, and you'll have plenty of updates to apply. Uh, I tried it recently for my Linux distro tier list video, and I think there was 1.3 gigabytes of updates to download to get it up to date compared to every other distribution out there. So it's kind of baffling that there's no new ISO to recap all this because it basically forces users to download a lot of updates. So still, it's an automatic move from DistroWatch. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, anything specific apart from pointing to users that Solus is just not very well maintained. It doesn't mean they have any insider info on the distro shutting down. But if you put all the things that happened to Solus recently back to back, you start to get the picture of a distro that has basically nobody involved in it. It it just doesn't have enough critical mass to survive. Uh, There was the issues with the website, the bug tracker, and the forum going completely offline for multiple months. And just one single person being tasked with maintaining that infrastructure and putting things back up, which... They ended up doing, but it took so long that it's really not confidence-inducing. There were a lot of people leaving the distro. The original developer, uh, Aiki Doherty, uh, basically disappeared one day and just left everything in ruins without giving anybody access to anything. Then they reappeared, the project started back again, Uh, Aiki started working on its own thing, on their own thing, And then you had Joshua Strobel, one of the main key contributors to Solus, leaving as well uh, to work specifically on Budgie, uh, which is the desktop environment that uh, Solus used at first. They only had that version uh, at first, if I remember correctly. And so it seems that now they basically don't really have 
anybody to work on this thing. Uh, there's just one person to maintain every single infrastructure the distro depends upon, and they clearly don't have the time to do a good job at it. It just takes way too long when there's an issue to be resolved. And as I could find as well when I used Solus for my distro tier list video, some packages are just not up to date at all. Uh, Firefox, for example, in their repos is at version 108. The current one is 111, which means that using Firefox on Solus gives you an insecure experience uh, because you don't have the latest security patches and for a web browser, that's really, really bad. So yeah, the distro is basically dying and it might already be dead. There hasn't been any blog updates since 2021 for Solus. Uh, their latest Twitter status updates, uh, which you might expect everything recent to be there, but on social media, the latest one dates from February. It just feels like there's no one at the helm anymore, no one working on it, and as such, I cannot recommend anybody keep using Solus. If you use Solus, you should absolutely move to something else while they resolve their issues if they can. It's super sad to see a distro slowly eroding away and Solus was never just another Ubuntu clone. It was always more interesting than that. But it just feels like there's not enough interest in the Linux community to work on this distro and to contribute to it. So I hope they can recover, but I highly doubt that it's possible because, well, as I'm doing right now, it sort of creates a death spiral where everybody starts saying that it's dead, so people stop using it, people stop contributing, and it's basically an auto-fulfilling prophecy, but that's the reality of things. Now, Linux is multifaceted and stuff dies and stuff gets born again and it seems like Solus just doesn't really have a place anymore in the Linux distribution world. So now let's talk about AI and it looks like the fact that it presents false information as fact with the highest of confidence might finally come back to bite them somewhere not nice. Brian Hood, who is a whistleblower who helped expose a bribery scandal in Australia. It was a scandal linked to Australia's National Reserve Bank. It was apparently a very big thing in Australia. And he's now looking into suing OpenAI, the makers of ChatGPT. Because when you ask ChatGPT about that bribery case, it presents Brian Hood as a criminal. It states that they were convinced of paying bribes to foreign officials, something that never happened. It says that he pleaded guilty to bribery and corruption, which also never happened. And that he's been sentenced to prison, which is also completely untrue. He was actually the one who exposed the scandal that led to other people being convicted, pleading guilty and going to jail. The AI also at some point mentioned that he authorized payments to an arms dealer for a deal with Taiwan or something. This is very, very damaging for someone's reputation. If anyone looks Brian Hood up on ChatGPT or on the new Bing, they're gonna find out all this false information. And he's an elected official in Australia. He's a mayor of a town in Australia. And there is zero suggestion anywhere on the internet that he might have committed any of what ChatGPT accuses him of. So it's a case of the AI hallucinating something out of the blue, or worse, completely misunderstanding everything it could find on the topic. So I understand that he's pissed, and I totally understand that he was willing to sue uh, OpenAI. And if that lawsuit proceeds, and if he wins, 
it will be the first defamation case against an AI tool. And it would be a very, very defining moment because it would make people who create AI tools liable for what the AI actually writes, which seems like a normal thing, you know? If you have something that is really used by a lot of people, it should have at least some amount of guarantee that the information isn't completely false. And defamation lawsuits are the tools used to bring these false information claims to the light and, and make them right. If tomorrow I decided to write an article saying, I don't know, Linus Torvalds is a murderer and he's been convicted of killing thousands of people, he could sue me and I would go to jail. I don't see, well, or at least I would have to pay a hefty fine. Uh, I don't see why the makers of AI tools would be exempt from this just because the tool hallucinates or creates information or summarizes information. If it misunderstands and brings false information, then the tool is defective. And as such, it should be liable. There also apparently is a case in France, where I live, uh, where uh, a member of the parliament is also looking into suing uh, because, again, the AI just invents information. And the grounds for his potential suit would be that, as it's a tool that collects user information, it is liable to provide information that is actually true and relevant, and that's just not the case with ChatGPT. It's patently false in a lot of cases. So yeah, I, I hope this thing can go forward and we can finally get, at least in one country, because I guess a lawsuit in Australia would only affect the use in Australia, but I hope it can finally bring some amount of realization that Yes, those tools are new, but since they're getting deployed by a lot of major companies, they need to be checked for what they actually provide. We can't just release in the wild something that invents information which can actually affect people's lives. It's just too dangerous and it's just completely unfair to treat them as, well, they're AI, so they're completely free of any kind of legal repercussions. This would create a lot of problems. And... Yes, I do believe that they should be liable for this kind of stuff. You just can't create a tool that just spews misinformation and has no repercussions from it. If you are willing to put that product into the hands of users, it needs to be pitch perfect. It needs to be exact. It, or at least provide some kind of accuracy score or, or a way to identify that this information might be actually completely false. And that's just not the case. For now, it's users that have to report when something is untrue, which is... Stupid, because if you ask a question, then you probably don't know the answer to it. So how would you know that the answer isn't true? I hope this thing goes forward, and I hope ChatGPT is held liable for this. They need to be put in check for how much information they create. Now, it's no secret that the EU has beef with the fact that most big tech companies are from the US. Uh, there are legitimate concerns about this, such as uh, privacy, because of course all these big tech companies collect a lot of data on their users, and US law means that that data can be just basically extradited from EU servers in a lot of cases, and just be used by the US government, which is obviously unacceptable for the countries of the European Union. There are some other less funded concerns, uh, which are basically everything that comes to digital sovereignty. Uh, if you don't take into account privacy, it really does not matter if the company is based in the EU, in the US, 
it should not matter. We live in a global world and companies should be able to operate from anywhere as long as they conform to the laws where they operate. So, yeah. But the EU still wants to have their own, like, big tech giant. And they haven't been shy about this. And it, look like, it looks like something might happen uh, in the future on that front. Well, at least uh, the premises of, of a big tech giant in France. Because OVH, which is one of the biggest French and European cloud providers, not in terms of customers or market share, but in terms of just it's European and French and it's really big compared to other companies in that region, they're planning to take control of Quant, which, if you don't know about it, is a search engine, it's a French search engine, who built itself as the European Google, but definitely never really managed to reach any sizable market share and also didn't really manage to reach any viable uh, business model. And they also were embroiled in a lot of controversies over how they treated their employees, uh, their focus on various products, just not polishing up the search engine, trying to launch 20,000 other things to basically be a Google competitor, but overworking people, being really not transparent and stuff. It, it was just a mess and it's not a company I'd recommend using because it has some shady stuff in its past. You can look it up, it's easy to find information about it. So OVH wants to buy Quant, or at least merge with them, but also with Shadow, uh, Shadow PC, which you also might know as basically a streaming tool that lets you rent a powerful PC in the cloud, uh, play games on it, on it, and stream that back to your desktop, uh, which is running, I don't know, Linux, Windows, whatever. It just runs in a browser or in a default app. So they want to merge these companies to create something called Symphonium, which is a bad name in my opinion, but why not? And the goal is to combine these things to offer more competitive solutions to Google's, Amazon's or Microsoft's on the European market. But it seems that they're really focused on providing solutions for companies and not for end users. Because OVH is a cloud provider, so it's mostly to deploy servers. Uh, Quant as a search engine, I don't really know what they're doing in there. And Shadow as a streaming technology is also probably more focused towards enterprise because for now they build themselves as a gaming solution. But a streaming service for PCs in the cloud is definitely more suitable for company and enterprise uses. So they want to create a big portal to highlight the most successful European companies and try specifically to transform Shadow from something aimed at gamers to something broader. And it's also pretty good to appease the requests that many European governments have to retain that digital sovereignty because they want to have the data stored locally in the EU and not accessible by US companies, which I can totally understand. And of course, this deal hasn't been signed yet. Any number of things could go wrong, but it would definitely help save Quant, which is absolutely struggling in terms of market share or business model, they just never managed to grow as fast as they wanted, but it's also because the product was never as good as competitors. And honestly, personally, I'm all for it. If we could have a big European company that abides by the privacy laws we have there, that isn't as shady as big tech companies from the US like Google, Apple or Microsoft, I would be very happy. But generally, when you tend to create a tech giant, it also tends to slowly move towards being a shady, terrible company because that's the way capitalism goes. You 
when you reach a certain size, you have investors and to please those investors, you have to make decisions that go against your users. You can't please both at the same time. It's actually very, very rare when that happens. But also I feel that they completely forget that to create a Google or Microsoft competitor, you need a individual arm of the company. You can't just be enterprise focused. The success of Google in enterprise comes from the fact that they were a company focused on individuals first. They started by offering services to regular people. And once that brand was well established in people's minds, then they started offering services for companies, which generated a lot of revenue. But companies only signed with Google because they already knew and used their products as people, as individuals. If you don't provide anything for individuals or regular users, then you don't just you just don't have the mind share. And so companies will still prefer something that they tend to use personally, that people working there tend to use personally, compared to something that is purely enterprise focused. So you can just create a Google competitor if you only focus on cloud, PC streaming, and I don't know, internal search engines or whatever they want to do with Quant. You have to have a consumer-focused arm and Quant cannot be that arm. It proved again and again that it's just not capable of it. So yeah, I don't really know if that's going to succeed, but if they don't offer services like email calendars, web browsers, and maybe even an operating system, I just don't see how they could gain any mind share to really be a competitor to Google, Microsoft, or Amazon. Now let's talk about KDE a little bit. And their work on Plasma 6 continues with one major goal, uh, which is trying to make hybrid GPU devices not suck anymore. And that's their own words, not mine. So they apparently merged something for KWIN to better support Intel and AMD GPU combos. So basically hybrid laptops with a dedicated AMD GPU and an integrated Intel GPU. Uh, this should perform now much better because they revamped the way the buffer is generated and passed and how it's displayed on screen, but it seems that it won't affect Intel plus NVIDIA combos just yet. Now, on top of that, they also worked uh, on their various apps and desktops. They added an option to open new tabs in a window without raising it to the foreground. Like, for example, you're reading an email which has plenty of links, you want to click each link. Uh, clicking on a link would bring the browser window immediately and you would have to switch back to the email client, click and do that again. Uh, now that you apparently have an option that lets you keep a window in the background but opening tabs in it as well, which is good. Uh, they also made the emoji selector faster to open when you press Control plus dot, a handy keyboard shortcut when you're in text field uh, that lets you just select an emoji and copy and paste it. And they revamped the authentication windows uh, to just focus on entering passwords. It's less cluttered, it's more streamlined, it's, it looks better. Uh, the KWIN rules settings pages uh, have also been revamped a bit, so options are more clearly explained, which is still part of their ongoing work to make KD settings more legible and actually feel less uh, uh, overwhelming, probably, for users. And they also added an option for folder view, the little widget you could put on your desktop to have various folders available in a click. Uh, now, folder view items will be open with a single click instead of a double click when you use the pop-up list form, which makes sense since it's basically acting like a menu, so you shouldn't have to double click on that. Uh, 148 bugs were also fixed this week, including for the Wayland section and fixing a problem that prevented to set higher refresh rates 
than 60 Hertz on AMD GPU. So if you have an AMD GPU and a high refresh rate display, uh, you're gonna want to apply your updates to KDE 5.27. And now uh, the week before that, uh, they confirmed that they will probably need eight months instead of the usual four to deliver Plasma 6, which means we should be able to expect this new release in October. And in the meantime, they are also fixing a lot of stuff on KDE 5.27 and your applications will still get updates to the KDE Gear app compilation. So don't worry, even though the next release will probably not be before October, the current version of KDE isn't abandoned at all. Now, still on the KDE topic, it looks like KDE Connect is going to see a lot of work this year. Uh, they want to improve it uh, as the project is basically 10 years old. And while it's really awesome if you want to send files from your desktop to your phone or vice versa, control your desktop or laptop using your phone and receive notifications from one to the other, it's a really, really great project. But a lot of people seem to have difficulties pairing their phone and their desktop. And that's because it uses a pretty old UDP protocol. And it seems that they want to use the much newer multicast DNS which would let devices discover each other faster or just discover each other at all, which would be really nice. Uh, they will also improve security by dropping older methods of pairing and sharing data, which means that they will at least require Android 5 to install the app, which should honestly not be a problem. Like if you use a phone with Android 5, you should definitely use something else because I don't even think it has security updates anymore. And they will also get a security audit done to make sure that everything is up to snuff. They also want to work on accessibility uh, and that will be done by porting the desktop client to Qt 6, which will give them ample opportunity to work on making it more accessible with a keyboard, with a screen reader and stuff like that. And they will also have an accessibility audit done to confirm that everything they work on is okay and respects every kind of user. So that's really cool. Uh, I can't wait to have the update because I have been having issues recently with KD Connect where it just doesn't detect certain uh, devices on my network anymore, which used to work before. So if they can fix that, that would be awesome. Now, if we move on to the other side of the desktop environments, talking about GNOME, uh, they worked a little bit on Libidvita and it gained two new widget types. Uh, to display spin buttons, which are, you know, those little numbers with the plus and minus signs on the left and right of the value, so you can adjust a number really precisely. Uh, and they also have a new widget type to display various properties, but with the value being a much bigger font than the title. So maybe something useful for decon, for stuff like that. Uh, it's going to be useful to create better apps, basically. Uh, they also worked on GNOME software to triage issues and to fix problems, and so it should be much smoother in the next minor update to GNOME 44, which probably a lot of you aren't using just yet, because it's not in Fedora yet, it will be with Fedora 38, it's not in Ubuntu yet either. Uh, I don't even know if Arch got it already, so maybe not a lot of people are using GNOME 44, but just know that once you start using it, you'll get a nice minor update to make uh, GNOME software even better. Now, in terms of GNOME apps, uh, there's an update to Wyke, which is the Wikipedia client. It's actually a very useful app. You might think, why would I want a Wikipedia desktop client? But it basically like separates uh, your Wikipedia research workflow from your web browser, and it has some cool features. And so this app has been moved to GTK4. It now has an always visible search input that you can activate just by typing in the window. 
It also gained a side panel to display the table of contents of the article you're viewing, changing the languages, uh, creating bookmarks, and you can now change the theme uh, that Wikipedia uses as well inside of the app, which is really cool. There's also an update to Tube Converter, an app I already talked about, which lets you download videos from YouTube and other video platforms. Uh, it now lets you open files directly from the application after they're downloaded, or open the folder where they were downloaded, which is much nicer than trying to remember where you actually store those things. And they, uh, there's also an update to the Fosh mobile shell, which has now a new power menu uh, to power off the device, to take a screenshot, make an emergency call, or lock the device. And you can bring that one by long pressing the power button. So it basically works like on most Android phones now. There was also an update to Denaro, which is the personal finance manager budgeting tool. It now has a nice dashboard page to let you see all your accounts in one place. And you can now assign colors to various spending groups. So it's easier to see where you're spending the most of your money and actually adjust your budget. And the previous week, I didn't give an update on, on GNOME because there wasn't all that much, but I'm just going to take the opportunity here. Uh, Loop, the new image viewer that I talked about basically in every GNOME update in those podcasts, uh, it now has a release on FlatHub as a preview. So if you want to try it out, see what they changed compared to the current image viewer, which seems to be mostly performance improvements. It should be way faster. It should render mo more file types. And it should also work way better with touchpad gestures, which is really cool. You can zoom in and out by pinching. It's smooth. It's nice. So if you want to test how it works, you can download it from FlatHub. It's called Loop. It's a French word uh, for magnifying glass. It's uh, L-O-U-P-E. And there's also an update to Musai, which is basically the Shazam for GNOME. Uh, that lets you listen in on any of your audio feeds from your desktop or using your microphone and automatically detect the song. Uh, it has a brand new user interface and it supports media control applets, which should mean it's easier to actually make use of, which is nice. So it's all really, really good stuff this week for GNOME. Plenty of cool apps to make your desktop more productive. Gotta say, every time I say it, but I'm gonna keep saying it, they, I really like what GNOME is doing with their app ecosystem. Now, it looks like Microsoft is finally starting to realize that handheld gaming PCs are just not really suited to Windows, or maybe it's the other way around. The Windows operating system is really not suited to 7, 8-inch screens that are mainly operated with controllers, sticks, and buttons. Uh, because, yeah, those devices have become pretty popular with the Steam Deck selling about 3 million units, uh, at least that's what's planned for this year, and One X Player and iAneo just basically inundating the market with new devices, with iAneo even working on their own operating system to move away from Windows. So yeah, it looks like they're finally realizing that there's maybe a threat for that kind of gaming devices uh, from Linux-based operating systems, and they're thinking about building a dedicated handheld mode in Windows. So it's just a few leaked slides from an internal hackathon from the end of 2022, but it reveals a few mockups of a first-run setup that simplifies driver installation, uh, of a better touchscreen keyboard that can actually be controlled using the sticks and the buttons of the device, and of a simplified game launcher. Now, they're also apparently thinking of improving OS-wide controller support and changing the default behavior uh, of, of the system, basically like opening apps in full-screen mode instead of small windows, which make no sense on a 7-inch screen, uh, better scaling the UI, and more. 
So we don't really know if anybody is actively working on that at Microsoft or if it's planned for a future update to Windows 11, but it's interesting to see that they're realizing there's potential in this type of hardware. And yeah, if you look at how many units the Steam Deck is selling and how much press coverage it's getting, yeah, it's understandable. Now, they, <laughs> the funny thing is that Microsoft actually has a gaming interface uh, on Xbox. Xbox runs a version of Windows and has its own launcher. And I just don't understand how Microsoft can still be that type of company that basically never thinks of reusing their own products. You have the Xbox launcher, it's great. You have the settings in there. You have the controller support in there. You have everything you need to make a game launcher mode on PCs and on handhelds. You could bring that launcher. It's running on top of Windows on, 880, on x86. It's already there. Why don't you port it to run PC games and integrate with various stores? I don't understand what they're doing. Microsoft is still a weird company at its core. And let's not forget that if you just plaster a launcher on top of the Windows desktop and OS, you're basically adding overhead and you still can't compete in terms of pure performance with an OS that's been built specifically for these kinds of devices. SteamOS will always be a better choice if you don't care about running 100% of PC games because it's built for gaming. Running the full fat windows with a launcher on top of it is just not going to give you the same experience. You're adding a top, you're adding a lot of overhead on top of your game and it's just not as good. But yeah, for people who actually want to play all the possible games that exist on PC on a handheld, then at least it's good that Microsoft is maybe thinking about bringing an updated mode to better serve these customers because for now, Windows on these devices is atrocious to use. Every time I see a, an LTT video or someone reviewing Windows on the deck, I cringe at how difficult interacting with this OS is. It's just not made for it. So yeah, if they can bring something, it's, it's good. Now, we have a funny little bit of news about Firefox on Windows, uh, where apparently this browser has a reputation for being very resource-hungry and, and eating up a lot of CPU cycles. I can testify to that myself, because I don't run any Windows computer, but I can safely say that on Linux, Firefox uses way less resources than Chromium-based browsers. But apparently on Windows, that was not the case, and it might have contributed to Firefox's demise on Windows. Uh, because, yeah, when you use a browser that basically hogs your CPU and makes your whole computer run slower, you tend to want to change your browser. And it looks like this excessive CPU consumption wasn't due to the browser itself. It was due to Windows Defender, a pre-installed tool that runs on every Windows computer unless you specifically remove it. And apparently this thing has a real-time web activity monitoring component, which applies to every browser you run. And also, apparently, Windows Defender was called upon way more often when using Firefox than when using Edge or Chrome or Chromium-based browsers, which made Firefox eat CPU cycles like crazy with all the bad performance perception it incurred and all the bad battery life uh, that comes with that. That issue has been identified since 2018, five years ago, and was attributed to Windows Defender by everybody who looked into it, but it took Microsoft five years to actually fix it, 
in the latest update to Windows Defender on Windows 11 and Windows 11. And I might just be paranoid, but it's really hard to not find that super suspicious. Because Edge Chromium appeared in 2018, when that bug was reported. So would Microsoft be as evil as voluntarily degrade the performance of somebody else's browser just to try and promote Edge back when Firefox still had a sizable market share? Or is it just a coincidence? Like, the paranoid in me wants to say it's definitely on purpose and that they voluntarily made Firefox really bad on Windows so people still using it would move to Edge Chromium and they probably could not do that to Chrome because Chrome is way bigger and Google has more, let's say, nuisance power and could retaliate easily. Or maybe they just couldn't technically differentiate how Windows Defender works with Chromium, whatever the browser it is. But honestly, it looks super shady. It looks like they specifically targeted Firefox and waited until like Edge has a bigger market share than Firefox to actually fix the bug. It's all speculation, but it wouldn't be the first time Windows did or Microsoft did something that bad. So yeah, just wanted to bring that to your attention. You'll draw your own conclusions on that. Now we have another case of people are idiots uh, when it comes to AI tools. It looks like Samsung software engineers have accidentally or voluntarily leaked proprietary code by pasting it into ChatGPT in the hope that it would magically fix their code. Uh, there's one employee who copied source code from a semiconductor database, another one did the same for firmware for a specific piece of hardware, and a third asked ChatGPT to summarize internal meeting notes. And in all three instances, of course, the content of the query, so the code or the meeting notes, were stored by ChatGPT, because when you use that, you agree to that. They have the rights to collect anything you type in the prompt field and reuse that to train their AI or just look at it internally and see what people are looking at. And of course, Samsung as a company finally noticed, and they enforced a limit of uh, 1,024 bytes for ChatGPT prompts, which is really not a lot. So when you use ChatGPT internally at Samsung, you probably just can ask a question with three words or more um, or, or less. But yeah, they had previously banned the use of ChatGPT uh, at the company over these concerns. They had lifted the ban three weeks ago, and in three weeks, they had a bunch of idiots pasting their own code, trying to see if an AI could be better at their job than they actually are, which... Come on, guys, that's, that, that's the worst use of your time possible and the worst justification for your job possible. So apparently, yeah, more and more developers are thinking that using AI tools is a good idea to fix their buggy code, even though those AI still cannot count properly, do math any, for anything that, that's any worth, or just even provide accurate information. It's really a bad idea. And apparently Stack Overflow also agrees because they decided to ban chat GPT generated responses because they are always inaccurate. As they say, they look like they might be the good answer, but they have a high rate of being incorrect. So 
Yeah, whether you work at Samsung or not, stop trying to get an AI do your work for you. It's not there yet. It provides false information, it can't calculate anything, it's just not ready. And if you work at a company, don't paste internal data in a tool that collects private information and stores it. You're leaking your own work. I just can't understand how people are so stupid with these things, but hey. It's still funny to talk about it. And we also have a nice big privacy breach to discuss this week, as Tesla employees apparently have access to the internal and external cameras of Tesla vehicles. Or at least they have access to the images captured by them. They might not have a live feed of it. So several ex-Tesla employees said that they actually were very easily able to see footage from these built-in cameras and that they actually passed sensitive videos around from a car crashing into a kid to a naked man approaching a car in his garage. The images were anonymized, but since you know which vehicle captured it, the exact reference number of the, of the model of the vehicle, and they also had location data, it's actually very, very easy to attribute these images to a specific individual. Now, apparently... These employees were all part of the team charged with reviewing this footage to improve Tesla's safe driving capabilities. Not every employee at Tesla has access to that. But it still means that when you buy a Tesla, you basically agree to humans looking at what you do in or around your car, whether it's for improving self-driving or not. And that's really, really bad. Especially when you consider that these employees passed images around for a laugh or even made memes out of them to distribute them internally at the company. Something that a lawyer could probably argue is not in the spirit of which consent was given when buying the vehicle. Because if you agree to the privacy policy that this data can be used to improve self-driving, you definitely did not agree to have your private videos of what you do in your car or around it in your garage passed around uh, for people to laugh at you. So, yeah, again, cameras in private places, just don't do it, whether it's a smart home, whether it's a car, and apparently it's getting harder and harder to get a car without cameras. But, yeah, if you don't control where the footage is stored and who has access to it, you should not have those cameras around you. It's just a terrible idea every time. And let's finish this podcast with the gaming news. And so this week, there's a nice reminder that Valve is a company with everything that entails. Uh, They might have done a lot for Linux gaming, but they're not an angel either. Uh, They have now caved to a developer and publisher's request to remove a negative review on the game Warlander. This review specifically pointed out that the anti-cheat the game uses uh, is pretty shady and might not be private and has problems. And that negative review was highly upvoted. Uh, A lot of people marked it as a useful review. It was the most visible review on the games page. And so the publishers and developers took issue with that and asked Valve to remove it, and Valve did it. And so everyone who marked this review as helpful has now their accounts restricted for 30 days, which means they cannot now vote on any other review for 30 days. Uh, This review was marked as violating the terms of service, which seems to be a big stretch of that definition. And that's really not a good look if if negative comments can be removed just because they are not pleasing to the developer or the publisher. Uh, Unfortunately, you can't see the original review anymore. I couldn't find a capture of it. 
But from what I could see or read, there was nothing insulting, there was nothing promoting piracy or anything. It's perfectly okay to point out that anti-cheat or DRM systems have an impact on how well a game plays or on a user's privacy, and negative comments based on that should not be removed. So yeah, not a great job, Valve, in here. You might want to look at who's actually applying that kind of moderation, because they're really not doing a great job right there. Now, if you use GE Proton, which is the modified Proton version that improves game compatibility, at the expense of some stability, then you absolutely need to grab the latest version as it fixes issues with easy anti-cheat on top of bringing more up-to-date VKD3D and DXVK versions. So as always, you can get that manually, download it from their GitHub repo and paste it in the relevant folder inside of your Steam installation. Or you can use a tool like ProtonUp, which lets you download these things more easily and graphically. And final tidbit, uh, it looks like the latest version of Mesa will be pretty great for Linux gamers, at least if they use Intel and AMD GPUs. Uh, Mesa 23.1 will bring the new graphics pipeline library. Uh, it's expected to be released on May the 3rd, and it should improve shader-related stutters a lot, which you might be familiar with on games that don't have a downloadable shader cache or don't build one, uh, when you enter a new level or a new area, you'll get a lot of stutters as the shaders are compiled on the fly. So this thing will be pretty much solved with the new version of Mesa, and they will also reduce cache file sizes. Uh, if the cache is stored in a single file, the reduction can be up to 60%, and if the cache is stored in multiple files, then it's way less noticeable, it's 2%. So you'll get better performance, smoother gameplay, and less disk usage, which is also really cool. And of course, since uh, the Steam Deck uses an AMD APU, it will also benefit from that, which means that the experience will be smoother, even for games released on day one that don't have that shader cache automatically built and downloaded. So it's gonna be a better experience on day one for most games, and even for older games that never got the shader cache treatment, which is really cool. And so this concludes this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And as always, all the links to all the articles I used are in the show notes and all the links to follow me everywhere else on Mastodon or on YouTube, uh, watching Linux-related videos and stuff, or to support the show. They're all in the show notes as well. So I hope you enjoyed, and I guess you'll hear me in the next one. Bye!